Okay, stack people. Yes. You just got back from the big offhand, all hands, off hands, offsite, offsite. All, all hands, <laughs> keep your hands to yourself. Yes. <laughs> all hands, off hands. Yeah. Okay. In Austin, Texas. Austin, Austin, Texas. So it was Stack by Stack West. Stack by Stack West. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay, so what happened? You get down there, it's a nice short flight, everybody's there. We Austin. did. There was there's almost three hundred of us, and there was three hundred of us in one hotel. And that hotel so there was two hundred and seventy of us in a hotel that had two hundred and eighty rooms. So there was ten people that were super confused. Yeah, that's totally fair. They really <laughs> were. They're were like, What is happening? Who are these people? But mm-hmm. it was great. We Shame had lots no of Q and A site for them to figure yeah. out how yeah. to <laughs> They went on the They internet. were like, am I an NPC in this video game? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do at Stack by Stack West? Well, we did a lot of stuff. We, you know, talked about the future of the company. We, uh, we laid out a unified product roadmap for the first unified time in the company history, which is pretty fun. All right. That's Bring good. all the divisions together to talk about how we're going to build the thing. That is cool. My yeah. God, that is some nice clarity for a human being. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what else? We did a, you know, co- core values exercise, which is a little bit cheesy, but also really interesting. Like people who are remote or people who work on some of the teams that I don't had completely different ideas about what the core values should be. And so that was pretty eye opening, I think. So we have some pretty big news for the community, and I'll let Sarah kind of lead that because she was the key person, I think, in bringing all these different visions together. Yeah. Well, first, I'll start with the concept behind it. So, Paul, do you know what a human in the loop is? I really don't. I know what an event loop is in programming. Yeah, well, human in the loop is something that is not that. Okay. But <laughs> nice try. Just, try. just trying to bring it home here. So let, let me just quietly listen as you tell me about the loop. Yeah, so a human in the loop is a concept from machine learning where there is a model that needs a human being to be complete. So these are things that a computer makes its best guess, and then it learns from a human that verifies the computer's findings or moves forward. So a good example of this, we have something on the website called, the branding's a little iffy, it's called the unfriendly robot comment classifier. So the unfriendly (laughs) robot looks for unfriendly comments and flags them, and then our curators and moderators go through and verify if this is a a negative comment and then it gets removed. So there are human in the loop in that case. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that we've been working on as a company is being able to work in public more, you know, like be transparent, help people understand what's coming, let them know what we're building, why we're building it, what our research tells us. So we're starting a new blog series called The Loop in which we're asking our users to be our human in the loop Mm -hmm. and first of all, give us feedback and read about what each other are saying. So we're going to be sharing our UX research, the work of our data scientists. We have a site satisfaction survey that we do where we survey a statistically significant number of Stack Overflow users and ask them what we could be doing better. And so we'll be sharing all that data with them. And additionally, in our first post, we're going to be asking people to participate in our Through the Loop survey which is a way for them to tell us what they would like to see from Stack Overflow over the next year. So you're listening more. Listening more. But you're also, and asking more, and then you're also showing more. Yeah, that's the big thing. We do a lot of research, and we share some of it, but we really wanted to share all of it, like show people what we're seeing so they can understand why we're prioritizing certain things. And I do think when you start to look at the numbers, they often look very different than the conversation that we've been having with each other internally and with Meta. Like the user survey paints a very different picture of what people's experience is, what their 
you know, appreciation or dissatisfaction is than what we get when we're talking amongst ourselves or talking with that sort of core group of engaged users on Meta. Yes. That's right. That's right. So you're going to show your work. And that's, that is really to be commended. That is actually super useful for the community. So good. That's cool. Yeah. Great. And another thing that's great about it, too, is just learning from like we have incredible data scientists, incredible product managers, and incredible U.S. researchers that I learn from every day. And I'm excited to see people in our community learning from them, too, because they're really I mean, like how amazing they are at their craft is really awesome. Hey everyone, today I'm really excited to announce we have an amazing guest. We have Charlton McElwain. He's professor of media culture and communication at NYU, and he's an author of an amazing book called Black Software, The Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter. Welcome, Charlton. Thank you. Charlton, I'm really enjoying your book. Can you tell me who is your book written for? You know, it was really written for everyone. I know all authors sort of say that, but <laughs> it's a topic that is largely historical and historical in a sense that I think very few people like myself, when I started to get into it, really know anything about. And that is the intersection of digital media technology and computing and civil rights or racial justice activism more generally. And, you know, we typically think about those two things as being worlds apart mm, yeah. in the present and historically. Uh, and so uncovering that story, I wanted to write something that could help everyone sort of um, illuminate and understand a little bit more of that context. That's very cool. So what's your background in technology or history? How did you get to the point where this was the kind of book you wanted to write? Part of the book, as we'll, we'll get to, is about early black innovators, technologists, and so forth. Some of that story starting with the early web in the 90s. And so most people ask and say, you know, were you one of these folks who were working with technology in the early 90s? And I say, no. The thing I could do most at that time was play free cell, which is how I spent most of my time on computers <laughs> um, in those days, even though there was a world around me that was doing awesome, uh, great things. So it really flash forward to about 2006. A colleague of mine and I decided to do a blog that we called This Week in Race. It was one of the uh, early academic blogs, and we were really trying to just distill some academic social science research into lay terms on the intersection of race and media. Fast forward after that to about 2008, 2009, I really started getting into interested in the topic of race and technology. And that came from really a recognition that a lot of the folks that I was engaged with in terms of racial justice activism and so forth were engaging in the online space, using platforms, building, designing things that would further particular causes. And I wanted to understand that. For me, that was something I needed to do in order to engage in that way was to learn a little bit more about technology. Right. I wanted to understand really how networks worked. And so, you know, I went down a rabbit hole for several years of trying to understand networks, data, and doing a lot of uh, sort of network analysis, some coding, rud rudimentary coding, spent a lot of just, I won't say it was wasted time, but it was a lot of rabbit holes uh -huh. uh, trying to figure <laughs> out how to do things, why things didn't work. And then in 2014, Black Lives Matter hits the scene, powerful movement that really engages digital tools to do its uh, very powerful work. And I wanted to understand 
how and why that happened at the moment it did, and particularly how folks really marshaled digital media tools to do something very unique. So you said you started uh, blogging in 2006, give or take. So yeah. what platform were you on at the time? What was the blogging platform of choice in 2006? Oh, it's hard to even remember, I think. Academics were all Blogger and Blogspot. That's what I remember. There were a lot of academic yeah. blogs sort of all linking up at that time. Yeah, right? exactly. So it, that would be your default. Yeah, probably. Before, you know, Facebook and Twitter were huge. So like you were talking about these network effects, a lot of times it was blogs linking to one another and recommending each other. And that was sort of how you created those network effects back then, right? Exactly. You got your blog roll, you know, <laughs> and here's my links to the this kids person. Have no yeah, idea. everyone's no linking idea. to each other's <laughs> blogs. Yeah. What were those called? Blog chains? Blog circles? Oh, they'd show up at the Bitcoin. bottom. Web rings. <laughs> yeah, web, web rings. rings. Web, web rings were earlier. Now that there sounds was, like a criminal yeah. enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> but no, there was a golden era of academic blogging, which was, which you were right in the middle of, where just like it professed were just like writing these great explanatory essays and sort of linking up and having events. It was cool. When yeah. I went yeah. back to look at the beginning of the Stack Overflow podcast, which is like 2008, 2009, Joel was saying, well, you know, I'm number 15 on blog lines and Jeff is 60. So if we just put our power together, think of what we can do. It's like, yeah. Burn, oh, burn that with fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, let's go back to the title, Black Software. Explain what Black Software is. Yeah, in one respect, black software really is a designation about software technology that is built by black people, built uh, essentially for black people, meaning with African-Americans' interests in mind. And so that black software is really about who is creating, and that is one part of the book. The other is more metaphorical to talk about what we typically think of nefariously when we think about black and dark and sinister, and it's the way that I wanted to describe our earlier history in the early 1960s when civil rights, racial justice uh, really come into clash with the development of computing. And so I really say there's two kinds of black software, those that work for the interest of black people and people of color and those that it works against. Mm. So we need to know about both if we're going to be informed people in technology. So let's start with the first. Can you give me an example, an example of black, specifically black software? Yeah, I'll tell you about um, uh, a guy that I met uh, early on. His name is Kamal Al-Mansur. Kamal had a, uh, a journey. He, was, uh, he got a degree in politics, went to law school in San Francisco, ended up back in the Southern California working for Jet Propulsion Labs, doing tech transfer work in the late 80s. This is no fooling around, though. That is like one of the, the cores of the tech industry over the period of the, like the last 50 years. Like Absolutely. Being it's, a JPL is like as good as it gets. Indeed. Indeed. It's everything is happening. And so he's looking around and saying, I'm seeing all of this new stuff being built and people talking about software and what that is and what that means and it's really new and we're talking about you know tech transfer and what does it mean to license software and sell it and he said before long i just realized number one i didn't see anyone else around jpl that looked like me mm -hmm. no one else in the industry that looked like me and so that sort of cut to his heart and then he moves to boston gets another job, happens to be watching TV one day and sees a Princeton professor talking about building a software package called Culture. And it talked about 
Rembrandt and Van Gogh and all these European white guys. And he said, look, I don't see anything here that represents me, my background, my origins, and so forth. And so he starts a company called Afrolink Software. And what it first was, was a set of image software that reflected African-Americans, mm-hmm. African-Americans in varying situations, black professionals, blacks in sports, religious leaders, uh, folks at church or what have you. But really from the framework of if I'm going to visually represent people in software in the kind of image packages that were rolling around at the time, I want to see my community. And so that was really the first kind of instance of black software. We should explain for our our younger listeners, right? <laughs> Let's say you wanted to make a newsletter. You wanted to put an illustration in. You would buy a set of clip art. Right. It would come like on discs or on... It wasn't like today when you can Google image search and just just help yourself. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, I, and of course, me being me and being extremely white, it never occurred to me before the book. I'm like, yes, every single piece of clip art was completely white. Yep. Yeah. And all the faces were white. And there, I mean, then, then they'd always like, there'd always be like one face that wasn't right. like out of 180,000 <laughs> images. There'd be like, you know, diverse, happy people playing yeah. baseball. <laughs> so he, he saw that obviously immediately and was like, all right, there's a market gap. Let's close it up. Indeed. And uh, he said, I've got to put in here folks who look like me and then imagine the kind of response you get when people suddenly begin to see themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was boom. I mean, his business took off from the very beginning, very lucrative, very profitable. That's so fascinating. You know, I was just watching this Ken Burns history documentary of country music. And I think there's a parallel there where in any industry, if there's that gap where, you know, there are no records that have African-American artists or Mexican artists, then people suddenly say, I don't see myself represented and that's a problem. But it's also for them a business opportunity because once they start to create those records, there's a huge market of people who want to see themselves represented or their songs, their culture, or their faces, whatever that may be. Indeed. It's a big gap. It's a big opportunity. And that's, you know, I think that is a kind of a big difference. Folks see and say, look how bad we are and what we haven't done. And others say, I'm going to do something about this. Here's a huge gaping hole that I can really fill. So Afrolink starts with sort of like collections that that help with representation. What happens next? It remains there. It turns into much more of an information system. So the software is really about the circulation of information about black people, about black communities, black interests. So it starts to feature a lot about uh, Africa, digitizes basically encyclopedias and dictionaries in other languages and African languages. So it becomes an information software portal as well as a sort of clip art and graphic representational software as well. So running parallel essentially to to white software, there's this whole other world that's showing up in, in Afrolink where your Encarta and things like that are represented for the black community with software that I guess you had to buy through mail order at that point. Like what was the. Yeah. You know, it was mail order. You know, it was in stores, you know, so there's an interesting story about, you know, another guy, William, who is in Boston and has a computer store and happens to meet Kamal. And I won't tell the whole story, but that's the way things circulated. It was very physical material on disc. So you had to have those kinds of meetings a little bit later. You could do things on uh, bulletin boards and so forth. Well, this is running parallel to the whole, I mean, this was how home computing starts too, like the computer fairs and things like that, user groups. 
Precisely. It's all, it's connected, it's community, and that's, you know, a large part of why this mm. proliferates, I think, particularly in the African-American community at the time that Kamal begins his work, because, you know, people really want, need that connection. And this is, you know, the early, mid, late 80s, lots going on in the world, lots to keep black folks and black and white folks apart from each other. And so people, all people really craving connection and to see a software package or an information system that is about and for you and is the Mm. nexus of bringing you together in a community is very powerful. The other interesting thing I'll just mention here, which is that it comes to the attention of other folks. So there's Microsoft at the time saying, oh, this could be good. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And we're building software and information and encyclopedias and digitizing them and so forth. And so there becomes a market opening beyond just black audiences. And that ends up into another very kind of interesting story about that moment of uh, competition. Can we talk a little bit about the other side of things? So you talked about black software being software that is from the black community for the African-American community. Can you talk a little bit about more more about the other side of things that you're seeing, things that work against the African-American community? So think about it in this way. Think about 1960, the dawn, if you will, of the computing revolution as things are really starting to take off in terms of computer development, software development, and the push of computing out into the world, popular uh, usage and imagination and so forth. And you ask yourself the question, who's building these systems? Why? For what purposes? And so one part of the story looks at that question in the early 1960s. And so if you look at places like MIT, which is where I focus a lot of the book, but also characteristic of most engineering schools and so forth at the time, elite engineering institutions, there were no black people. Mm. There were no non-white people, mostly. Mm. Mm. Very few women. And so think about then a stage where you're saying, look, I'm building something that people very readily saw. This is about to change the world. This is about to change the way that we interact with each other. Mm. And not a single, basically, person of color is at a lab, at an IBM, at a company, having any kind of a say into what gets designed for what purposes and what do we want to really use this for, right? So take that as one instance. Then take uh, someone like IBM who brands themselves as, hey, we're here to solve problems. That's what computers do. So bring me your problem, I'll build you a solution. And they were very, very, very aggressive in marketing and basically saying, we have some things that we've built, but we really wanna build what you need us to build to help you solve your problem. Mm-hmm. Well, think about a national scale And bring me your problem. Here's Lyndon Johnson that says, we have a massive problem in the U.S. It's a problem of crime, which is a problem of urbanization, which is really a problem about black people Hmm. who during this time are out in the streets fighting for their rights. Uh, They are rioting. They are protesting, engaged in all these kinds of behaviors. And they're all linked in the American imagination as one giant problem. Uh, And so at a moment in 1964, 65, Lyndon Johnson says, 
I want a task force that wants to and can solve this problem of crime. And particularly, I want a science and engineering task force who can tell me how do we use computers power to solve this particular mm. problem. And that starts us in a whole um, decline uh, that begins in the early 60s with massive crime database, connected database systems that allow for race-based profiling, predictive policing, and so forth. That begins, and this was one of the stunning things for me early on, was that that was there in 1964. Mm. And we fast forward to now and talk about facial recognition technology, talk about predictive policing technologies, and so forth. And people will say, you know, wow, this is a problem, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. And it crept up over the last few years. And I'm like, no, this is a yeah. fruition of a 50-year-long project in very general ways, but also in very specific ways. Oh, that's it's fascinating. fascinating. That is the era also of sort of McNamara and central planning. And sort of suddenly they were going to graft all the wonderful skills and tools that you use to automate the Ford Motor Company production line. Mm. and drop that into the middle of society and make sense with it. And mostly when we talk about that historically, we talk about Vietnam. Yep. Like People used to protest the computer rooms because they saw the computer as being connected to Vietnam. And you have some of this in the book. Mm -hmm. But it was at home, too. And that doesn't really come... That is not part of the, the regular historical narrative. Indeed. We don't see that history. We don't see those connections. We don't see the ways in which people thought about the computer as a, you know, in a, a disconnected kind of system that had no bearing on social life, meaning it was a, uh, it was a control device in much the same way that I wanted computer systems to control, you know, a rocket we send to the moon. Um, this was a control tool that people just thought I can deploy it on a very particular problem, there will be an outcome, but no real thinking about the ripple effects through society, both interpersonally at home or a business or on a larger scale. So back then, what did, you know, when you say that I think of CompuStat, you know, and things that I, I'm familiar with from New York that obviously have a lot of issues of bias. And again, you were just talking about facial recognition, and there's been so many really great stories, great reporting recently about bias that's built into a lot of these new, you know, powerful machine learning algorithms. We should explain for, for our audience, what is CompuStat? So CompuStat is a, pr a program that they use in New York for the police department. And I don't claim to know everything about it, but my understanding is that, you know, it tracks incidents and reports of, you know, criminal activity or even a disturbance or a call or a complaint. And the police then use that to say, okay, this is a hot spot, so we better do more policing here. And that in turn has, is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you're doing more stop and frisk somewhere or you just you know, have a lot of officers somewhere, you're creating an antagonistic relationship between the neighborhood and the police. And so in a lot of ways, CompuStat you know, is meant, like you said, to be this effective numerical statistical tool, but it has huge you know, ripple effects when it plays out in real life. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and the interesting thing and the, the reply I often have is, CompStat and all these things were built in 1964. What did it look like? Like when, what, who was the first person to build it? And what did it look like back then? Was it a national thing or like an FBI thing or what was it? It was, it was local and national. So the one case that I really talk about was the largest uh, network. It was called Alert 2 and it was in uh, Missouri, Kansas City. So it was an information system and that's how it was first built. We're just collecting information about crime, perpetrators of crime. 
And it was all about sort of police logistics, you know, how if I've got a 100-person police force and I've got three census tracts or police beats, how do I know how many police to put in each one to really set myself up to maximally address the crime problem? So how do I come up with an algorithm to figure that out? Mm -hmm. I need data. Right. And so I'm feeding this database, number one. Then it comes into how do I make this data usable? Mm. And then ultimately, how do I how do I not only make it usable in the moment, but how do I start to predict what might happen and use that to use uh, in the moment? So these were, you know, they were huge databases that were local, but they were connected to the FBI uh, network. And then more and more, they were connected to adjacent uh, state networks, so Missouri and then Oklahoma or Texas and so forth. And then you have, so you have this data, and then you have the same type of people that are recording the data are now analyzing the data. What harm does this do? So I think the harm comes in saying, uh, or creating a society where the relationship between technology and any particular group is negatively framed, meaning mm. I have no interest in technology. That might be one from seeing myself rarely yeah. represented, uh, yeah. rarely having the access to the tools over the years, or saying I don't want to have a part in building a system that seems to always negatively work on people in communities like me, right? And so in that way, we push communities away from being invested in technology in one sense, what do you see in movements like Black Lives Matter of people that are working to make changes in the system that gets you excited? Yeah, you know, it, it really comes through. And, you know, here, here's an example that I like to uh, point to that's really about Black Lives Matter and the direction of how we frame and then ultimately use and build technologies and something that is a very simple one. And it has to do with data and databases, right? So Black Lives Matter comes on the scene. It's really talking a lot and calling people's attention to the problems that black people face at the hands of the criminal justice system, particularly uh, officer-involved violence and shootings and so forth. And there was a moment in 2014, 2015, when people started to ask a very simple question, which was, how often does this happen across the country? And no one knew, mm. right? So here we have years of building databases of information about certain things, and no one has thought to build a database that collects information on about how frequently and in what circumstances police officers shoot, kill, or otherwise harm people of color, or anyone for that matter. And I saw that conversation pop up so often where it was saying sort of like, well, it seems like there's been this drastic increase in officer-involved shootings. Like, why is this happening? And the answer is, well, now people have technology like cell phones that are ubiquitous and omnipresent, mm -hmm. and they have social networks that allow the videos they capture to gain momentum and spread and be noticed by journalists. And so we're actually just getting a clear view of how often this kind of stuff happens. Indeed. And so what you started to have uh, happen was folks like Mapping Police Violence was one of them who basically said, all right, I'm going to build an application that basically shows both numerically but also visually and geographically how this happens, where this happens, and the subjects that are part of these kinds of interactions. But it's just a simple kind of illustration of a capability, a technological capability that we have 
that we simply put out of our minds. Could be used in very good ways or in nefarious ways. Technology systems are in place and the data begins to be collected. People can leverage that, you know, to certain ends, especially when you get to the level of a nation state, right? Indeed. Cops don't love it when you gather data on them, though. They <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. There are cars now in New York that drive around, police cars, that are just doing their patrols or whatever, but they also have cameras on them. And so they're scanning every license plate. And so they could find a car that, you know, is connected to a warrant or a car that has so many tickets that, you know, it can be towed or whatever. So this is obviously... Something slightly dystopian about this, and I think it can cause problems. But for my father, who's about to turn 70, mm -hmm. the other day he was like, oh, my God, our car's been stolen. I can't find it. I parked it right here, and it's gone. And he called the police station, and they were like, oh, no, it's parked over here. You just misplaced it because, <laughs> yeah. you know, they know yeah. where every car yeah. is. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's we've got buses are going to have cameras that track all the cars in bike lanes, which is great for bicyclists, maybe bad for building a global police state. I don't know. <laughs> yep. We're going we're to take that a day at a time. But I do love when people try to do the databases of, like, police-involved shootings or, or, you know, just even – Sort of anything where the the camera gets turned back on anyone. Yep. Oh my God, nobody likes that. They're they're happy to have that database filled out with like crime stats, but when it's about other, when it's about what the police are doing, it's like no, no, you can't. You can't even have that information. Yeah, right? yeah I, re I remember when I remember when those databases first started coming out. Going, you know, searching my hometown and mm -hmm. seeing officers that you know, like my experience is very different than many people's experience and seeing officers that I knew personally and and seeing the amount of complaints that they're getting per year or mm -hmm. comparatively across the state and just being like, wow. Like you said, we've used so much of this data to profile so many people and looking at data like this, which is reflective of the people that we are hiring to police our towns and police our counties and just more understanding what people are facing. That stuff is so um, interesting and important. Yeah. You know, when, when we celebrate things like Black Lives Matter, which was a powerful movement, uh, a continuous and ongoing movement, but in terms of the digital technology and leveraging that, there are limits, right? And so that was what you were speaking of earlier, just as Black Lives Matter and activists and journalists or others are really leveraging the Twitter platform uh, to connect, to mobilize, to mobilize simultaneously across uh, geographical points in the country and so forth. All of a sudden, law enforcement decides, well, we can get Twitter accounts, too, mm. and we can mask who we are. We can figure out where you're going and what you're, gonna, you're plotting next, and we can figure out who threw that trash can maybe through that window and come in. Uh, arrest you and so forth. And so all of a sudden the technology is back in the hands of those with power. And we've already built in a structure where the folks that are marginalized don't have access. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank uh, you. Tell people where they can find you in real life online and where they can go and get your book. Black Software is the book. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. Uh, you can find me also almost anywhere. You can find me on Twitter at C-M-C-I-L-W-A-I-N or my website, charltonmcelwain.com. I work at NYU in New York City and um, am all over uh, the web, maybe even somewhere on Stack Overflow. Ooh, I've been secretly getting some rap. You've been answering some questions? Well, once, not answering any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot about pop internet history, internet history, 
There are um, things like diversity, IBM, or AT&T. There's a lot in this book that was completely new to me. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty exciting. We didn't even get to the after that. I've never heard of that. Yeah. That sounds cool. There, there was, and that was why it was such a fun book to write, because everything I was just like, whoa, I didn't know that. Whoa, I'd never seen that. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So Very there's cool. a lot of that in there. There's a whole world of software you don't know about unless you buy this book. Yeah, so we'll put it in the show notes for sure. You can buy the book right from there. You've got a promo code? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So at the end of every episode, we shout out lifeboaters. These are people who somebody asked a question on Stack Overflow. It wasn't answered. It got a negative score. Basically, it was going to be consigned to the dustbin of history. And then somebody came in and gave an answer, and it was upvoted. And so now, hey, there's a useful answer. The person who asked the question was answered. And so we just shout these people out. They're just members of the community. So this week, we have Gabriel, who has only 201 rep, so a pretty new user. Thank you, Gabriel. How to open a huge SQL file. Yeah? Yeah. But then, yeah, just here we have a gentleman. I don't want to mangle his name, but we'll give a shout out to Ojunuwaga for answering a question, saving it, a lifeboat, display HTML from values in the same page after submit. Thank you. Lifeboat of the week. Good job, lifeboaters. And then we have one last, Panag Seneketi. Can ML Kit for Firebase be used for handwritten text? Sure, why not? Let's figure it out. You know, all I would say is that these things are really, really complicated, and they get in your head, and you go like, oh, I feel bad. I feel bad about all this stuff. That's good. It's good. <laughs> That's a yep. sign of maturity and responsibility. Right. Yep. You probably are a hypocrite, and you're <laughs> yeah. going to have to deal with that for the rest of your life. And that's okay. That's the human condition. Right. Make Dis- it better. Discomfort is all right, and mm-hmm. often it's the thing we need yeah. to do ultimately do something. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So the sign that we're there is at least a good step forward. That's right. The yeah. key is not to sit there and go, but I'm actually really a good person. I'm really <laughs> yeah, okay. Never st- <laughs> Just deal with it. Like, Just ease into it. It's okay. <laughs> right. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find me at Ben Popper on Twitter. Y'all? I'm Sarah J. Chips at Twitter.com and JoelBats.com for all your holiday needs. And I'm F-Train on Twitter. And if you uh, need something built, like some digital thing, you should get in touch with me, Paul.Ford at postlight.com. Postlight.com.